Great colic from Anselm of Canterbury here on the front. We'll pray that one. O blessed Lord, who has commanded us to love one another, grant us grace that having received your undeserved bounty, we may love everyone in you for you. We implore your mercy for all, but especially for the friends whom your love has given to us. Love them, O fountain of love, and make them to love you with all their heart, that they may will and speak and do those things only which are pleasing to you. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. It's especially true of mothers, so that's good. And Bounty, I'm reminded of Dog the Bounty Hunter. You ever seen that show? It is a very good show, actually. It's great for premarital counseling. I mean, they're like, they're always together. I'm serious. You guys should all, you all laugh. Go home and watch Dog the Bounty Hunter. Aimed at the same thing, same direction. It's Ephesians 5 embodied. It's great. Love is action, all that good stuff. Uh, when they pull out the gun and have the raid. You should watch it sometimes. This goes to uh, Voice of Care. So pass that around, drop a couple bucks in. That's for Pastor Kretschmar and his group. Uh, so that's good. Let's see, open your outline. Go back to the very beginning. We're not going to read through this verse by verse because we did that last time around. But I do just want to uh, recap a couple of things. Um, you know, you may remember, it, well, you should, you should remember, but I didn't say it last week, and by not saying it, someone will say you didn't say it, and we didn't know that. Remember, uh, any talk of restitution, or as you see, they're making things right, you know, on earth, is always talk that's happened post-baptism, post-forgiveness. So we're not talking here about doing good or making restitution in order to enter the kingdom of God, um, nor are we talking about restitution in order to be justified in the sense that justification is the Lord looks at a damned sinner who's unbaptized and then he sees you in light of the water of the font and says, oh, that's my child now. That's not what we're talking about. What we're talking about is making wrongs right on earth post-baptism, post the start of the Christian life, post being saved, post being justification. Pick your, you know, whatever adjective you want to use. We're talking post all of that. Okay? And this is, um, Pastor Bruzik said it in the sermon today, you know, if you, don't, if you don't believe that that's an integral part of the Christian life, just read the gospel accounts for the Easter season. I mean, every Sunday he is saying either follow me or love one another. Or I mean, today was great. Go and sin or go and sin no more or it'll be worse for you. So you think it's bad, you know, that you can't get up and walk around. Try sinning again and see what happens. So all of this is post the Lord having his way with you. This is now how the Lord gets best possible use of you, of me, of us together corporately as this community. That's what it's all about. Okay? So don't, uh, you know, please don't sort of confuse those things. Don't think that we're talking about how to get into the kingdom or how to be, you know, forgiven or justified. That's not what we're talking about. We presume everyone in this room uh, has been baptized, has been forgiven, has been justified, and is now a child of God. So the question is, how do you live like a child? I was, even, I was even surprised, as Jesus said today in the Gospel, you know, don't sin anymore. How sometimes that rubs against us, but how often we say those sorts of things to our own kids. You know, you say to your own kids, don't do that again because it's going to hurt you, or please don't talk to me that way, or don't talk to your teachers that way, or don't do that at school, or don't do that at home, or that's not best for you. And probably to a person, we all think that that's good and helpful. I mean, if you didn't speak to your own children that way, people would look at you and say, that's a bad parent. Um, and you have to begin to envision the relationship that God has with you as one not between creator and created necessarily, or between judge and, you know, convicted, but
but it's between a father and a son, or a father and a daughter. And you really have to begin to see the church as your mother. Um, you know, Mother's Day is bigger than just buying your, your mom a corsage or something. You know, it's, this is the church's day, too. Um, and that, of course, is embodied in the person of Mary, as we prayed in the, in the prayer of the church for today. So keep all of that in mind. This is all post-forgiveness, but it really is making things right on earth. So if you look there at the scripture section, the first one, of course, was realignment, walk behind Jesus. The second one was, you know, do you love me? Love is action. If you love him, you will live a certain way. The third one, I am the true vine. That's great where it says, and so prove to be my disciples. And I posed the question last week, prove to whom? To the Father? To the world? To those around you? And also to yourself? Um, you know, Christians all the time struggle with whether or not they're saved. Let me say this. If you ask yourself that question, that's probably a good sign. Because it means you actually are. You're actually concerned about those sorts of things. But I would urge you not only to come to the Eucharist and receive the gifts, but then go back out and live the life that Jesus has called you to live. And in so living it, you will prove that you are his disciple. Okay? And then we ended, uh, we ended with the confessions, but I want to go back to the Zacchaeus text and just read that one more time and make an observation or two. So, uh, one, two, three, fourth one down on the first page, on to the second page. He entered Jericho and was passing through. And there was a rich man named Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was rich. He wasn't just a tax collector, he was the tax collector. Um, which makes the story doubly good if you live in first century Palestine. And he was rich. Okay, so that's important as well. And he was seeking to see who Jesus was. Now you have to ask, why was he seeking? Um, maybe just to see what he looked like. Remember when he goes before Herod. Was it Herod who Herod says, I've longed to see him, and I've longed to see the miracles. There were people all across Jerusalem and Judea who were waiting to see who Jesus was. He was a rock star. He was. Um, and his preaching, you know, sort of either enlivened or invigorated or angered the crowds around him. He wasn't a boring preacher. He preached so that people were moved. Some people hated him, some people wanted to kill him, and some people loved him. But everybody wanted to see him. And he was seeking to see who Jesus was, but on account of the crowd he could not because he was small in stature. So he ran on ahead and climbed up to a sycamore tree to see him, for he was about to pass that way. And when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today. So he hurried and came down and received him joyfully. And when they saw it, they all grumbled. He has gone into be, the, into be the guest of a man who is a sinner. Why? Chief tax collector, and he was rich. And Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor. That's a good start. And if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, since he also is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. Now, you're probably asking yourselves, um, is this a one-off in the scriptures? And I had sort of said to you last week that um, restitution really involves two things. It involves not only squaring up debts on earth, but actually then... Um, putting the best construction on the person you've sinned against going forward. So I gave you a few examples. If you've written an email and said that someone, you know, had lied, you'd probably want to write the email back and say, guess what, they didn't lie, and then in the future write out emails that say, boy, they're very, they're very much an honest person. It's not just getting back to zero. It's actually putting money in the account. 
And if you're curious about where this begins, I would at least propose to you that you see this also in the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus. Jesus on the cross is the chief sinner, so says Luther. He dies for the sins of the world. He squares up, the, you know, he squares everything up. All the debts have been forgiven. That's why he says, forgive them, for they know not what they do. But guess what? He doesn't just die on the cross. He actually goes in the tomb, and he actually comes out of the tomb. You would be saved if Jesus had simply died on the cross. But he goes into the tomb, and he comes out of the tomb, so not only are you forgiven and saved, you actually will get your body back, and you'll live in Eden one more time. That's restitution. Forgiveness is the crucifixion. Restitution is the resurrection. He actually comes out of the grave and says, you will live again. Norman Nagel, when he was here, uh, someone posed the question, um, what's better, a cross with a body or a cross without a body? Obviously, a cross without a body is very helpful because it signifies the resurrection in some sense. Uh, he did come down. Now, whether or not we went to the tomb, that's a different question. But a cross with a body is blatantly cruciform. It's the crucifixion. And someone said, what would be better, a cross with a body or without a body? And Nagel's response was, do you want a savior from your sins, crucifixion, or a savior from your mortality? That makes sense? He either saves you from your sins or he saves you from, from death. Guess what? Jesus does both. And that's very important to remember. The prototype for restitution is found in the resurrection of Christ. He actually comes out of the grave, he gives you your body back, and he says, uh, you know, come back to Eden and live again. That makes sense? Stop me if it doesn't. You all look blank. Were you up late partying for Mother's Day? I was. How many of you got up and made breakfast for your wives in the morning? Raise your hand. Adam. Oh, one hand from the balcony. Good job, Bittner. I like how there are some men who shoot it up like, I'm so proud of this. And then you see Strutzel who's like, is he going to keep going and sort of make fun of me about this? Or actually, I am. <laughs> All right, from the back, yeah, Hopkins. I don't know which one you are, but uh, I'll just, Mr. Hopkins. Yeah, it is. Um, the question is, isn't that asking the same question? Mortality is a product of our sin. That's right, but they're not the same thing. So you can be forgiven. So, so for instance, when someone dies today, their body goes to the ground and their soul goes to be with Jesus. Had Jesus not come out of the grave, that's precisely what we'd live with the rest of our lives. But because Jesus came out of the grave and has a body again, he says, you'll get your body back as well. And that's the restitution bit. He, does, he doesn't only really square up all the debts. He actually takes it a step further and says, come and live again. That makes sense? Okay. Yes, Karen. I don't know. The question is, is it a new body or don't I know? I don't know. I don't know. Uh, I don't know. I don't know. I shouldn't comment on something I don't know. Although I've been known to do that in the past. <laughs> Just ask my wife. Like when I said, you really shouldn't cook that that way. She said, you don't know. I said, you're right, I don't know. But I'm still going to comment. Uh, is it a new body? I don't, I don't know. Someone once said, you know, remember when Jesus says to the to the little to the, the to the disciples, "Let the little children come to me." Someone once made the assertion. It was David Scare who said, "Maybe that shows you what the resurrection is like. Uh, we'll all be infants." 
I don't know. What does it mean to be an infant? I don't know. Go ahead, Don. That's right. Church fathers once had a great line, and this will sort of sum up this bit. Church fathers had a great line where they say, you gained more in Jesus than you lost in Adam. Think about that. You gained more in Jesus than you lost in Adam. You lost a lot in Adam. But Jesus not only squares it up, he takes you further. I got one more question right here. Go ahead. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, and glorified doesn't necessarily mean that he's, like, happy and healthy and there are no marks. You remember um, when he appears to the disciples, how do they know it's him? Put your hand in my side. And the great, is it Wesley who writes, Lo, he comes with clouds descending, gaze we on those glorious scars, he says. Okay, so glorification isn't glorification necessarily the way you and I think. But that's for another. That's when we talk about heaven. That's the next discussion. Now we're talking about restitution. Okay. So, you okay with all that? Oh, that's good. I'm going slowly so I get one more week. <laughs> all right, so the confessions bit, um, you know, you, we read through that last week. We don't need to rehash all of that. Just basically, as it says, looked at the two underlined bits. Good fruits ought to follow of necessity. Out of necessity. That's why when the confessions say, you know, good works are necessary, we sort of say, oh, I don't, I don't know how I like that. You know, good works are necessary. As I told you, people often say, well, that's the confession showed to me in Scripture, and I showed it to you in Scripture, and you say, well, where is it in the confessions? I'm giving you both, so then you can't disagree, Jan. Okay, good fruits ought to follow of necessity, and also, since a terrified conscience needs manifold consolations. Your work actually brings consolation to yourself, to others, to the world, and, frankly, to the Father himself. Now, look down there at and beyond. This is a Luther quote. And uh, let's see, AE42, it's later Luther. I don't have the date here, unfortunately. I'm sorry about that. But uh, the quote is good nonetheless. Therefore, when I suffer, I do not suffer alone, but Christ and all Christians suffer with me. Thus others bear my burden, and their strength is my strength. That's why the Eucharist is the most important place for the Christian community. And I don't... You know, you've experienced this as a married couple, I'm sure, or with children. If your wife gets sick or gets cancer, my guess is you may not get cancer, but you will suffer as well. If your children get hurt or they're in the ER, you may not have the same thing they do, but you will suffer as well. Relationships that are bound, you know, by flesh and by blood are relationships where one feels the pain of another. It's the same thing in the church. That's why Jesus says in Ephesians 5, you know, I'm the bridegroom, you're the bride. I'm speaking about Jesus and the church. You're my flesh and bones. I'm the head. So if someone in the body suffers, if the big toe hurts, guess what? Your head might start hurting too. So within the body, you suffer with one another. The faith of the church comes to the aid of my fearfulness. The chastity of others endures the temptation of my flesh. The fastings of others are my gain. The prayer of another pleads for me. So when you don't have faith, someone else has it for you. When you don't know what to pray, someone else prays it for you. Who could then despair in his sins? Who would not rejoice in his sorrows? He no longer bears his sin and punishment, 
And if he does bear them, he does not bear them alone, but is supported by so many holy children of God, yes, by Christ himself. So great a thing is the communion of saints in the church of Christ. So I would propose to you that when other people suffer, you suffer. But let me say this. When other people sin, you suffer the consequences of that sin as well. And for our current discussion, when other people make restitution, you enjoy you know, all the good gifts that come with that along with everyone else in the community. So you need to begin to see repentance and forgiveness and restitution not simply about you. It's not simply about you. It is about you, but it's not only about you. It's about you making wrongs right in heaven and on earth so that we as a community can begin to go forward. Luther's very helpful. When others suffer, you suffer. Guess what? When others sin, you suffer the consequences. When others make restitution, you suffer all, you enjoy all the pleasures of that restitution. So don't just think about yourself. And then Skillebex. He's a Catholic, so you know, instantly some of you may not like this. Uh, but it's good. People are the words with which God tells his story. And so then a question back to you, what story are we telling? People are the words with which God tells his story. So what story are we telling? This is why last week I said to you, out in the community, people say, I just heard this week, someone said, uh, you know, hey, I got a friend who was thinking about going to St. John, but they got lots of problems over there. Well, I mean, one, this person's never stepped foot in the place, and two, they really don't know anybody attached to this place. But that's the story we have told. So what would it look like if we told a different story? That's the point. What would it look like if we told a different story? And what would that story be, and where does that story start? Kathleen Norris, Amazing Grace. Over time, I have learned two things about my religious quest. First of all, that it is, it is God who is seeking me. It's not about you. And who has a myriad of ways of finding me. Second, that my most substantial changes in terms of religious conversion come through other people. Even when I am convinced that God is absent from my life, others have a way of suddenly revealing God's presence. My question to you, are we revealing the presence? Okay? Are we revealing the presence? Because the presence is a Christ who comes as gift. And a gift is someone who forgives, who repents, and who makes restitution. It's Christ on the cross. And then the last one, and this one may be you know, is the most edgy. I don't know. We'll, we'll take a look. Saying you're sorry is only part of repentance. And that I led this way last week. We've got trouble with forgiveness, which means we encourage people to just say they're sorry, and we accept a confessionless confession. So we need to change those two things around. We can't just say to people, you know what, Jack, you sinned against me. Just say you're sorry. Just say you're sorry, and we'll get over it. If you've sinned against someone else, you actually need to struggle through the pain of that sin. And then you make repentance. Then you say you're sorry. Then you apologize, and then you're forgiven. Saying you're sorry is only part of repentance. Alan never even did that to his victim, David Prunty, who pointed out that, quote, he never apologized to me. He only apologized publicly when he was cornered. This is great. I mean, you see this in the church all the time. You see it even now, sadly, with what's going on in the Roman Catholic Church. People don't apologize until they're cornered publicly. And I wonder how often that happens with us. We all know we've got sins. We all know we've hurt other people. You know, does it take publicly acknowledging someone as a sinner before they'll apologize? It shouldn't. It shouldn't have to go that far. 
shouldn't have to go that far. That's like, that is the last resort. He never apologized to me. He only apologized publicly when he was cornered. True repentance includes an acknowledgement in word and deed of the truth of the situation. I have sinned against that person. I told lies. I stole their money. I cheated on my spouse. Pick your thing. To be truly repentant, the offender must not only acknowledge the truth of the situation, I've done this, but also accept any punishment due him and will to make all the restitution that is possible. Uh, you know, we have people come in all the time who say, I, I got, not all the time, that makes it sound bad. I've had on, on some occasions people come in where it's actually been, you know, uh, they're actually crimes. And the first thing you say to them is, we're not going to work through this until you promise we'll go out and make restitution. You do promise we'll go out and we'll tell the people who you stole the money from, pick your thing, and make restitution. One of the reasons uh, your Catholic friends are so opposed to the death penalty, and again, I'm not making a political statement at all, so no one asked a question about this. I'm going to say it anyways. One of the reasons your Catholic friends are so opposed to the death penalty is because if you kill somebody, they can't do what? Make restitution. If you actually look at Catholic dogma and ask them why do they not support the death penalty, it would be if you kill someone, they can't make restitution. Now, I realize there are plenty of other things at stake there, like they're in prison, how do they make restitution? And I get all that. I'm just observing that there is a whole group of Christians who actually believe restitution is that important that they're willing to spare the life of someone else who has committed a crime. Okay? Any questions? <laughs> um, yeah. Uh, any, the question was, any suggestions for responding to a confessionless confession? Unfortunately, while I say that we shouldn't accept a confessionless confession, I'm not convinced that people who actually confess their sins are strong enough to make a good confession. Where are you sitting at? There you are. And that's part of the reason why Pastor Bruzek was so helpful in leading you through what makes a good confession. But it's all, it is all specific. I've been with people who have confessed to me, so this is not private confession, this is one-on-one. -on -one. Um, I did this against you, and it looks something like this. I did this, but I didn't mean it. Or I did this, or the best is, if I hurt you, I'm very sorry. That's a confessionless confession. But I've learned, even in the past eight months, that sort of saying to that person, that's not a confession, isn't helpful. Because mo more times than not, they're not strong enough to know what a real confession is. So I think partly, um, how do you respond? You take whatever you can get and, um, and hope that it goes better next time. Uh, and, added point, you yourself has to be one who confesses fully and embody for other people what that looks like. Because people aren't smart enough to read it in an explanation of the commandments and get it. Some people are. Not everybody is. Some people have to see it. So how do you respond? I would take whatever you can get and be grateful for that. Um, know who you're dealing with. Some people are smart enough, and they just don't want to do it. That's a very different situation. But many of these are pastoral instances that you may not run into. Um, just go gently. You hammering someone with, that's not a confession. They'll never confess again. Um, I don't know, do you have anything to add to that?
So, okay, anything else? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, that's actually a good point. The thief on the cross, he doesn't get very far. However, uh, because the thief on the cross is a one-off, that's sort of our starting point. Um, that's not the norm. Uh, that would be the lowest common denominator, not the highest. So we want to work to something else. But I do take the point that uh, he doesn't have a chance to come down and work all that off. Someone had something over here. Was that you? Yeah, remember when the, when the Lord, here's the thing, when the Lord says, a day is like a thousand years and a thousand years is like a day, or when he says, I'm the same yesterday, today, and forever, your time is, you know, chronos, watch time. Like, gosh, it's been two weeks and I've seen that person who's not said anything. That's one way. Kairos is sort of the Lord's time. Uh, you're working on the Lord's time when you do this because this is the Lord's business. So yeah, sometimes we say, gosh, I just wish it would happen. You cannot go slowly enough through some of these things. Yes. question is, how do you sort of learn restitution, specifically what to do, and then teach that to others? I, I do want to hold off to a certain extent because I want to go through some specific examples next time. Um, but I'll give you this. Partly it's um, undoing what's been done. And sometimes that involves just doing the opposite. It's sometimes it's that simple. Uh, because if you can think about it sort of as a, you know, on a scale, if you sin, you sort of weigh somebody down, now you got to bring them back up. How are you going to bring them back up to even par and then, you know, beyond? So if your wife says you never help out around the house, that may be true, may not be true, who knows? But your way of making restitution, if it's true that you actually don't do it, you're a lazy bum around the house, what would you do? You probably want to help her out around the house. <laughs> it's like people come to me and they say, I'm having marriage problems. My, my wife doesn't love me. I say, do nice things for her every day for the next two months. That's in some sense restitution. You haven't done nice things to her for a long time. Do nice stuff now. Now, see, I see all the men right now, like, nudging their wives. <laughs> Remember, it is Mother's Day, okay? <laughs> I said to someone at the door, are you playing golf today? And that person said, I'm not playing golf, but I am going to the driving range. And I said, you know, one of the great lines ever was someone who said, I told my wife on Father's Day, what I want for Father's Day is to play golf on Mother's Day. <laughs> I won't tell you who said that. I know. Uh, empty. Wide open. Wide open. <laughs> they probably have great, great uh, prices too. So don't nudge your wife. Yes, go ahead. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Right. No, there's some things for which you can't. There's yeah, exactly right. The, the point is, and you can pick any number of examples, there are some things for which you can't make restitution. I would clarify and say that's true. You can't make restitution for that person. 
but you can do something to make society as a whole, or this congregation, a better place for others. Exactly right. So your restitution, you're right. You know, there are some people you can't square it up with here for whatever reason. Um, so make it a better place for the next generation. Kind of. I did? Mm. Yes. Kind of. I actually don't remember. My memory is going. I can't, no, I can't remember. I kind of remember the story, but I don't want to get it wrong. We'll give it to him next time. Thanks a lot for making me look like an idiot. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> All right, moving on. You see what I have to deal with. Okay. Get out the Luther bit, 1532. Oh, almost 11 o'clock. Uh, while we look at that, Martha, can you help me with these? Dave, can you help me with these? Go on one side. Sorry about that. I do kind of remember the story now that I'm thinking about it. Yeah, he kills. Yeah, 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 yeah. I do. Rem yes, I do remember this now. Yeah, uh, I'll get. Yes, thank you. I do remember the story now. The story is of the South African who killed a woman's husband and son, and son, husband and son. Um, killed a woman's husband and son. Went to court. They brought the woman in and said, the judge said to her, "What would you like me to do with this man?" And she said, "You can be my husband, and you can be this boy's father." So the man who killed her husband and her son, she said, what do you want? You can do anything you want. You can kill him. You can put him in prison. She said, he'll be my husband, and he'll be the father to my son. Which, of course, is reminiscent of what story? Jesus on the cross. Right? Jesus on the cross. All those people around, including John, were responsible for the death of Jesus. And what does Jesus say from the cross? Not only forgive them, but he says, woman, behold your son, and to John, behold your son mother, which is his restitution. Exactly right. To undo what's been done. The kid doesn't have a father. Guess what? He can be the father. All right. I want to read you uh, a little. This Luther thing is quite long, um, but I do want to read it to you. Not all of it. We'll skip some parts, and then we'll look at one more thing. Thanks. Luther, 1532. So that's, uh, that's reliable stuff. He's come free of, you know, all the stuff he struggled with early on. So this is, this is good. So listen to this. This is Luther's bit on good works, but it's helpful. But how is it that by these words, he, Jesus, establishes such a close connection between forgiveness and our works when he says, quote, if you forgive your neighbor, you will be forgiven, and vice versa. Remember in the Lord's Prayer, forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. That does not seem to make forgiveness dependent upon faith. Answer, as I have often said elsewhere, the forgiveness of sins takes place in two ways. First, inwardly, through the gospel and the word of God, which is received by faith in the heart toward God. That's every Sunday morning. I forgive you all your sins. You say, yep, yep, I believe that. Second, outwardly, through works, 
about which 2 Peter 1.10 says, in its instructions regarding good works, dear brethren, be zealous to confirm your calling and election, to confirm that you are a Christian. He means to say that we should confirm our possession of faith and the forgiveness of sin by showing our works, making the tree manifest by means of its fruit, and making it evident that this is a sound tree and not a bad one. Where there is a genuine faith, their good works will certainly follow too. In this way, a man is pious and upright, both inwardly and outwardly, both before God and before men. For this follows as the fruit by which I assure myself and others that I have a genuine faith. This is the only way I can know or see this. In this passage, this work gets good. Similarly, the outward forgiveness that I show in my deeds is a sure sign that I have the forgiveness of sin in the sight of God. On the other hand, if I do not show this in my relations with my neighbor, if I don't forgive, if I don't do good, I have a sure sign that I do not have the forgiveness of sin in the sight of God, but I'm still stuck in my unbelief. You see, this is the twofold forgiveness, one inward in the heart clinging only to the word of God, and one outward breaking forth and assuring us that we have the inward one. This is how we distinguish works as outward righteousness from faith as inward righteousness but in such a way that the inward has precedence as the stem and root from which the good works must grow as fruit. Outward righteousness, however, is the witness of this. As Peter says, it's certification and assurance that the other is really present. When you live the Christian life, you are making sure that faith is present. Whoever lacks the inward righteousness does not do any of the outward works. On the other hand, where the outward signs and proofs are lacking, I cannot be sure of the inward, but I am deceiving both myself and others. At best, you're deceiving people. At worst, you don't have faith. But if I look and find myself gladly forgiving my neighbor, then I can draw this conclusion and say, I am not doing this work naturally, but by the grace of God, I feel different from the way I used to be. Let this brief answer suffice against the idle talk of the sophists. But it is also true that this work, as Jesus discusses it here, is not a mere work like the others which we do of ourselves, for it does not ignore faith. Now listen to this. He takes the work and puts a promise on top of it. If you forgive, I will forgive you. He takes the work and puts a promise on top of it so that it might quite appropriately be called a sacrament, a means of strengthening faith. Did you catch that? Good work. When he attaches a promise to it, an action and a promise, he says it might appropriately be called a sacrament. Skip down to the next paragraph. The reason I say this is that the sophists pay attention to the works we do on our own, apart from the word and promise of God. Therefore, when they hear and read statements like these making mention of works, they have to say that man merits this by his action. But the scriptures teach us otherwise. We should not look to ourselves, but to the word and promise of God, clinging to it by faith. And if you do a work on the basis of this word and promise, you have a sure indication that God is gracious to you. In this way, your own work, which God has now taken to himself, is to be a sure sign of forgiveness for you. Okay? We can stop there, and you can read this at home. I do want to talk about, uh, read that at home, please. But, you know, that should nudge you to not view good works lightly. As Luther says, they are a sacrament. Uh, and we'll talk more about that next week. I do want to give you one more thing, because I promised I would. You do have here the stuff from AOR on a um, very helpful thing that they passed out. Actually, they gave us many good things. Uh, and this, in some sense, is the most helpful, uh, you know, announcing God's grace through confession and forgiveness. 
And it gives you both their, uh, the individual part to deal with another Christian and the individual part to deal with the pastor. Um, I shouldn't say deal with, that's not what I mean, but whoever is hearing it at that time. Both are very good. Um, you know, use both of them as you see fit. But I do, I do want to sort of make one distinction here. This in and of itself is not restitution. Okay, this is not restitution. You remember we talked about uh, a variety of things, repentance, mercy, forgiveness. I drew you the circle, you know, back in January. This is forgiveness. Okay, this is forgiveness. This is the starting point. This is not restitution. Um, so if you're still struggling with forgiveness, and you remember, when was this sort of enacted? When did we use this most, most clearly? We didn't all get down with each other and say, okay, I've sinned against you, please forgive me, and we use the right. But when did this sort of take shape in our congregation? Do you remember? Remember that long night when we were all here and they had the great skit and then they said, go around and share the peace with everybody? That's when this, what, say that again? Yeah, October. That's when this took shape. That's when you lived this. Now, obviously, if you couldn't get to that point or if you weren't there yet or if you couldn't forgive or you couldn't share the peace, obviously, this is what you need to work through. But once you're beyond that, it comes to a restitution point. Remember, forgiveness is different than restitution. And, you know, to that end, let me just, and I want to say this as charitably and kindly as possible, but this is, this is sort of the basic starting point. Okay? This is what they give to every congregation. It's general, it's basic, it's the beginning, it's not the ending. And you know that the best law and gospel is always specific, so we need to sort of tailor this to ourselves, which is what we're trying to do right now in the Bible study, and also what Joe is going to try to do with the realignment committee. Um, but this is the bare minimum. None of you, I think, go out and say, give me the base model of the car. I want it with, like, no tinted windows, no power locks. I've driven these before. I almost bought one once. But most of you don't do that. It's the same thing here. This is sort of the base model that they can give out to everybody and say, now use it as you see fit. It's forgiveness. It's the beginning. It's general. It's not specific. It's our starting point, And we'll go on from there. We want to grow from this. But do use it and adapt it as you need it. Um, and if you're still struggling to forgive or be forgiven, this is your ticket. Then we go on to restitution. Okay? All right. Let's pray, and we'll be on our way. Lord, remember us in your kingdom, and teach us to pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen. All right, we'll see you next time.